Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, the crisis in Sri Lanka. They're calling it Sri Lanka's Arab Spring. There's no income. There are no tourists coming in. It's a cataclysmic failure of government. Protesters are calling for those responsible for economic mismanagement to be held accountable. Millions across the country are calling for a change in government, accusing the family in charge of corruption and mismanagement of the economy. And overnight, tens of thousands joined the largest protest in the country's history. It's a historic moment in this country. I've never seen anything like this in my life. Sri Lanka's 22 million people are facing the worst economic crisis since independence in 1948, with food, fuel and medical shortages and daily power cuts. The island nation has been through a 30-year civil war, a tsunami and the 2019 Easter bombings that killed and injured hundreds. But now, in a rare show, as people are united in their anger, shouting, go home, Gota, to the president. In a country more familiar with religious and racial separatism, here, Buddhist monks, clergymen and Muslims set aside their ideology for a common objective. Today, I talk to Sri Lankan Kiwi News Hub reporter Kethaki Masalamani, who has family and friends there. Well, the protests are, they're still ongoing and they swell every weekend, and there's no sign of people dispersing. It's unbelievably peaceful. That's what's unique about it, because they don't want to incite violence and for it to get bloody, because that's sort of the ammo of the current government. They can be absolutely ruthless. That's how they got into power. Violence is what this government does best, So that's what's different about these protests. Firstly, that there are protests in the first place because everyone is so scared or was so scared of this government. But now they're like, it's so desperate. Why are you here today? Uh, To show uh, the disbelief that the people of Sri Lanka have in this government and to show how they have failed us uh, as a nation. People can't afford their daily rice, their dal, their basic necessities. People can't get on buses to come to work, to go to school. How much worse can it get? There's no petrol, there's no diesel. Kids can't uh, sit their exams because there's no paper. They're eating a meal a day to, you know, ration out the supplies that they have and they've just taken to the streets. But there is very little change. What do the protesters want? So the protesters want new people in power. They don't want this Rajapaksha family in power. Because it's the, the president and the prime minister are brothers. They're brothers. And the prime minister is actually the former president. And up until very recently, there were six other cabinet ministers that were also Rajapakshas. So they really want a clean house and they want new people in power because they have sort of come to the realisation that these guys, they may have won the war and stopped this 30-year civil war, but they have lined their own pockets and now there are no reserves for the country. So they need people with checks and balances. In fact, this current president, one of the things that he did when he came into power as president is to give himself more power. So he went and looked at the 19th Amendment of like their Bill of Rights and powers that the Parliament 
previously had, he gave to himself. So now he has more financial oversight. He sort of made it a legal dictatorship almost. How has it come to this? I mean, people are saying this is the worst crisis in Sri Lanka since independence in 1948. Mm. Sri Lanka's coffers have all but dried up and it cannot afford to pay for imports. Problems have been made worse by the collapse of the tourism industry during the pandemic. It, it has been compounded by the fact that COVID happened and then the war in Ukraine happened, so the cost of everything has risen incredibly. Here's an idea of how much basic necessities now cost. White rice, a common Sri Lankan staple, increased by 93% since 2019. Chicken and lentils have gone up by at least 55 and 117% respectively. The state-owned Ceylon Petroleum Corporation raised the price of fuel by more than 130% last week. And a standard household cylinder of cooking gas increased from almost $5 in 2021 last year to $9 this year. Sri Lanka has become this country that relies so heavily on foreign imports for everything. It was a country that was relatively self-sufficient. There was, you know, it's abundant in its natural resources, but it's cheaper to import, or it was rather, um, than to invest in infrastructure for the country itself. So... They stopped making their own food, largely, and they rely heavily on imports. But obviously COVID hit, so there was no foreign currency coming in. The country struggled to import basics after foreign currency reserves ran low, in part due to a drop in tourism. You see, there's a fundamental problem with Sri Lanka. It imports more than it exports. It spends more than it earns. There is a trade deficit. There's also a budget deficit. Before COVID hit, Sri Lanka was the number one destination for lonely planets, and it was thriving. It was the jewel of the Indian Ocean. It's got these beautiful beaches. You go in, there's rainforests, there's wildlife reserves. It's stunning. It, there's not a space that you can go to that's not beautiful, and the food on top of that is just, I'm salivating thinking about it. And so that, as soon as that stopped, and that was their main income it really sort of started to hit. Mm. On top of that, it's also highly indebted. The island nation's foreign reserves stood at less than $2 billion at the end of March, while the country's foreign debt obligations for this year exceed $7 billion. They had loans from the IMF. They were indebted to China. There were projects that they were given billions of dollars for that never were built just roads that weren't built, ports that were half done, and the money wasn't with the people. So the government is accused of greed and corruption, mm -hmm. of lining their own pockets, of lining their family members' pockets. And the fear currently is that they have the means to escape the country as well. I spoke to an old classmate of mine when this all started unravelling, because I'd sort of started seeing it a little bit on Instagram as these protests sort of come to light in yes. other parts of the world. And at the start, it was just a couple of my old classmates and they were attending these protests. But they were relatively small and they were sort of saying, you know, we're having power cuts. You know, it's not the first time that the country's had power cuts. I remember growing up and we had to buy generators so that when the grid cut off, you could power your own electricity. And it was sort of like, you know how kids here know how to set up the internet, like they might not be able to read but you just instinctually know. We knew how to set up the generator 
when our parents might not have and other people might not have, we could kind of fiddle with it till we got the power in the house going. So I wasn't, you know, alarmed yet, mm, the fact that they were having power cuts. It was unusual that it would last that long, half a day, 15 hours, that was unusual. And this country's hot, 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 so, you know, not having a fan on in the day, it is actually... I don't know how you'd work. Mm. And it's not just your everyday people. If the power goes off in hospitals or nursing homes, that's the catastrophic part. And we've heard of surgeries being performed under phone torch lights. So that's when it starts getting dire, right? And then slowly it sort of took over my social media. It wasn't just the few civic-minded classmates going to these protests, it was the most affluent of people taking to the streets because even they couldn't afford to buy food and it was becoming an impossible situation to ignore. It wasn't just food, it's fuel. You have to line up for hours and half the people in the queues won't end up getting fuel. Mm. In fact, you did a story about doctors protesting. Doctors adding their voices to the nationwide call. For those in the medical field, it's not just a personal plea, it's a professional one. If there's no drugs or no vital drugs, the people will lose their life. So there's still scores of uh, things that they still don't have. And one of the doctors said, you know, we actually have very high health standards in Sri Lanka, despite being a third world country, because it just was a good medical system, that they had enough money and they could afford to treat people for cheaper than in the US. Now what's happening is they're having to ask the patients that are due for surgery to source their own drugs. Dr Sachita Vijayaratna says drugs used to get rid of blood clots are among those the hospitals need. The patient has to bring that drug from the outside pharmacy by paying himself. Most of it sometimes very unaffordable for our patients because these are fairly expensive. So that's things like anaesthetic, catheters, there was one doctor that said they've run out of the lenses for glaucoma surgery, the surgical blades. They're having to reuse them, they're having to re-sanitise and use them. And they've got the facilities to re-sanitise, but it's not proper medical practice. Mm. And the squirmish fact that he said was... I spoke to an ophthalmologist and he said it's bad when the blades get more and more blunt because the surgeries become messier and that has long-term effects. And if they don't have the proper antibiotics, if they don't have the most effective, then they give sort of this second-rate, second-shelf sort of Mm. drug instead, and that's less effective, and so they have bigger problems. And he sort of, he was, you know, in the way that people in the medical field can be because they see these things every day, he was like, you know, for me, being an eye doctor, it's not life or death, it's more like sight or blindness and I was like okay but that's kind of extreme right (laughs) if you have lots of people going blind because they can't perform basic surgeries. So you have spoken to your mum because um, your parents uh, have been over there visiting. Um, My mum's still there but my dad's back home Mm. Um, so she said it's sort of been amazing because mum actually grew up in the north of Sri Lanka and 
there, it's been a similar situation for decades. That was sort of the centre of the civil war. And when that part of the country was cut off from access from food and fuel and they lived in darkness without electricity for decades at a time, the rest of the country turned a blind eye because it was just the Tamil and Muslim minorities that were affected. Mm. And so she's grown up in that part of the country and she said, it's become such a massive issue now because it's affecting everyone and she's never seen unity like it at these protests. A few moments ago, the street lights went. People are waving their phones in the air for light. This is another moment of solidarity in a country which was once deeply divided by civil war. And that's what's different. A lot of her family have actually left the country and they live all over the world because the situation there was untenable for them. And now they're watching these protests and she's there and it's a really sad situation because what they experienced now the whole country's experiencing Mm. and it's not something you'd wish on anyone. But at the same time, it's this incredible sense of hope at these protests because for the first time, Sinhala Buddhist majority, Muslims are breaking fast at the protests Mm. and that is so rare to see a show of unity on the scale that they're seeing. You know, it's, it's a country of 22 million people, and it, you look at the footage, and it almost feels like all 22 million are there. <laughs> like, OK, but this has been going on for weeks, these protests. So has anything changed? So after a lot of dragging of their feet, the country finally went to the IMF, and they said, we are in a desperate situation. Initially, they tried to fix the problem themselves. They tried to print more money. It hasn't worked. Mm. And all that it eventuated in was the currency dropping at a rate that it's now the worst currency in the world. It's worth nothing, pretty much. And the foreign reserves are pretty much depleted as well. So it was at the point of desperation that they went to the IMF. And they've reached out to China and India as well, to sort of bail them out. And that hasn't happened at the scale that they were hoping, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So China's offered some rice, India's offered some fuel, and a lot of donations from around the world for medicines. They've sort of plugged the holes for now. The IMF, it comes with its strings, because in order to pay the IMF back, one, tourism needs to restart again, and also the few facilities that are still public are going to be privatised. So that's the hospitals, that's the schools. And people who, can't, who already can't afford these things are going to be hit the hardest. So the country's poorest will end up paying for this and they won't be able to afford education and they won't be able to afford healthcare. What's interesting here is there's been so much focus on Ukraine that countries that are going through other crises mm-hmm. just don't get noticed. And Sri Lanka is one of those. Mm. It was funny when we started covering it here. Firstly, to get a story about Sri Lanka across the line into the bulletin was a challenge because we were covering Ukraine so heavily. And so it really had to happen when New Zealanders also started protesting. 
Um, so there was a local angle that it wasn't just this problem happening half a world away. Mm. And when you look at the comments on the stories and compare them with Ukraine, Ukraine, there's a lot of sympathy for it from the New Zealand public and they can't believe the atrocities that are happening, rightly so. If you look at the articles on Sri Lanka and the calls for New Zealand, for the New Zealand government to help out as much as it can, it's an entirely different rhetoric. It's sort of, um, well, we have problems in New Zealand that we have to fix first and we can't fix everyone else's problems, which as a Sri Lankan Kiwi, it's a stark reality. You almost feel put in your place. It's a different rule for Asian countries. But in saying that, the voice of the Sri Lankan diaspora in New Zealand was so loud. And the global diaspora added their voices in protest against the president, taking to the streets in the US, Australia and around New Zealand. And there are Sri Lankan Kiwi journalists that are asking the government questions to the point where it did prompt some action. The Prime Minister said that she was going to receive a briefing on it. We haven't really heard what that briefing was. But she put Vanushi Walters, who is a Sri Lankan Kiwi, and also in charge of ethnic minorities, and she called a hui for different Sri Lankan groups. Mm. And I joined the first Zoom call. But it was really interesting as well, because what prompted the Zoom call was this petition that was going around calling for the New Zealand government to condemn the Sri Lankan government and to help in any way possible. Fisher and Paykel, for instance, makes a lot of the medical tools that is needed currently. Yeah. And so I think there was a hope that we could do something. And it also costs a bucket load of money to ship things to Sri Lanka. So I think as we did with, you know, we do with other natural disasters and things, I think we were hoping for some, or the people were hoping for some red tape to be cut so that these things could be easier but what was interesting was there was a clear sort of line between the younger generation of Sri Lankans and the old generations of Sri Lankans. From sitting in, in that meeting, the younger generation was saying, look, not only do we need to send help, but we need to acknowledge that this government in Sri Lanka is corrupt and that they've committed atrocities, human right atrocities in the past. And... They've given themselves power. We need to acknowledge that in order to fix the problem. And if foreign governments start condemning them, it sort of becomes an undeniable truth. And they were calling for that. The older Sri Lankan generation were saying, we absolutely need to send help. We absolutely disagree with the actions of this government. But we should not bring disrepute to the country. We should not be seeing that these human right violations were done. And even in Sri Lanka, it's the voice of the youth that's sort of moving this protest along and keeping it going and refusing to budge because it's their lives that will be affected. It's their children. They are the ones that are standing steadfast saying... It's not good enough to give us the small-term fixes. It's not good enough to just fix the economic crisis because it's a political crisis as well. It's strange because people still have to get on with their lives and go to work, but it feels like 
every moment that they have time, free time in, they're at these protests. So on the way to work, or um, I've heard people standing at bus stops with protest signs, people go after work. You know, as much as work continues in the commercial capital, people do have to go in order to earn the little money that they can in order to feed themselves. It's a bit more dire in other parts of the country where it's not commercial work, where it is agricultural. They just don't have the fuel to use the tractors, to run the mills. And so there's a lot of people taking to the streets because they have nothing else to do. A classmate of mine was saying, it's important to remember that Sri Lanka wasn't poor. Sri Lanka is not poor. We weren't poor. We were robbed. We were robbed. And that's the sentiment in the country. It's sort of, it's really sad, but in my mind, Sri Lanka has always been this place of kind of turmoil. There was this brief respite where the 30-year civil war had ended, but you were hearing other human rights violations. You were hearing about the Muslim community being targeted by nationalist Buddhists. You were hearing about the few remaining Tamil people being targeted and harassed on a daily basis. But there was a moment where everything sort of stilled and tourism was thriving and everyone was prosperous for a while and then the Easter bombings happened and that was catastrophic and innocent people died and now this, just a few years later, COVID hit, it shut down the country and now it's an economic turmoil and they don't know how to fix it. And Keith, Keith, the problem is that Sri Lanka needs tourism to get it back on its feet but Tourists aren't going to go there. No. And it's come at the worst time because finally New Zealand and Australia have opened up their borders. Australia's got the second largest Sri Lankan population outside of Sri Lanka. So people were booked to go back. And a few have kept their plans, my parents included. But it was because of absolute necessity that they went. My parents went because my grandma's not doing too well. Yeah, it's come at a time where tourists would have flooded in. The economic crisis has shut the gates on this because tourists don't want to go to a place where it's hard to travel around because there's no fuel for the cars or the tuk-tuks. Mm. Tourists don't want to go to a place where there's a food shortage. And tourists don't want to go to a place where there's big protests. Yes. Your parents must be devastated. Would, uh, how do they feel? You know, they've lived through the 30-year civil war and I think Sri Lankan people are just unflappable. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Kethaki Masalamani. Mā te wā. 